The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only and does not contain or constitute and should not be interpreted as any form of medical advice or opinion. You should always seek the advice of your healthcare provider about any questions or concerns that you may have. Hello everyone, my name is Juliana Aiken. I'm the host of the Unfiltered podcast and a co-founder of Unfiltered. Today I'm interviewing Dr. Sarah Spoward. She's a licensed marriage and family therapist and she helps individuals to create the life of their dreams and to be strong and resilient in the face of any obstacle. She specializes in a range of issues from supporting children, couples and families who are struggling to helping victims of violence, abuse and trauma. Today's discussion centers on trauma bonds, their definition, formation and the key strategies to break them effectively. Let's get started. Hi, Dr. Sarah. Thank you so much for joining me again here. It's nice to have you here. Hi, thank you. I'm happy to be back. Great. And today we are going to talk about, again, one of the most important topics and very, very important, and that is trauma bonds. And uh, we have a bunch of questions that all relate to trauma bonds in some way or another. So I want to start with... Uh, what is a trauma bond, Sarah? Yeah, so I feel like this term is getting thrown around a lot more recently and people don't really understand it. But one way of understanding it is it's a bond that still remains in spite of being treated badly and abused. And it's sort of this addictive pattern where you keep coming back over and over. Um, so it's a term that was originally developed by someone named Patrick Carnes. And it's to describe emotional bonds that arise from um, a cycle that's recurring pattern. And, and then the intermittent reinforcement of reward and punishment. So something that's interesting we know, and narcissists know this very well, you can't only be abusive. <laughs> and you can't, they can't only be nice. They need a mix. So when you do this, it's it's very fascinating, actually, in terms of the way humans are wired. If you are always doing abuse, people will leave. Um, they won't understand the benefit. They, they won't feel like you actually love them or care. But if you give them some cycle of reward and punishment, it confuses them and it's an easier way of control. So the trauma bond is really defined from what I've seen and uh, the literature I've read with this reward punishment cycle. And that, and some people say like the beginning stages is the love bombing. It, it provides the, the foundation of, um, you know, the rewards. So people think, Oh, this is what it's really about. And then there's a manipulation of punishment. And then if it gets too much, they do different tactics and then they will eventually go back to um, trying to do something that is more positive. If they go too far, they will bring it back. Um, and so it's it's the trauma, traumatic bonding that happens from this reward and punishment. And uh, a term that I I haven't come across it anywhere, um, but I, I refer to as toxic hope, which is the hope of, in my mind, um, this, this reward is the real them. This is who they really are. If we could just get back to that place. Um, not really, not really being honest with yourself about the reward punishment cycle. So it, it keeps you 
stuck in it, hooked in, because you're hoping to go back to the positive time, the love bombing time, the, the reward time, the time where they're really themselves and they're really being nice. But newsflash, all of their behavior is really themselves. You have to look at the whole picture, not just the little pieces you like and you're like, well, that's who they really are. No, that's not who they really are. Denial is one of the biggest problems I'd say with the trauma bond is not really acknowledging this is who this person is. Mm, yeah, thank you. And so you already kind of uh, hinted uh, at this, that uh, like, uh, my question is how are trauma bonds formed? And you mentioned this intermittent reinforcement and reward and punishment cycle. Is that exactly how they are formed? Or is there like, can you, uh, you know, uh, highlight this and talk more about this process of how they are formed? Yeah, so there, there's seven cycles uh, or seven aspects of the cycle that are estimated. But of course, you know, nothing is an exact science. I, I would say the reward punishment is probably the most simple way of breaking it down and the e easiest pattern to identify. Identifying patterns is huge because everything's on repeat, actually. It feels unique and special when it's happening to you, but actually... If you can take a step back and even keep records, almost like a little scientist doing research, um, you will see those same patterns on repeat, maybe just taking different forms, but it's always this reward punishment. But there are, you can look at it in terms of like seven aspects that can kind of hook someone in. The first one is love bombing. And by the way, the trauma bonding, it happens with abusive relationships, not just narcissistic Narcissistic relationships are abusive, but this is a general pattern with abusive ones. So the first one is love bombing, which is when someone is over the top loving and kind and you really, um, it's like the, you know, the most amazing experience you ever had. You, you think that this is, it's like something from a movie or something. Um, the next thing, although it's also relative to the person's experience, if someone's had a ton of abuse in their life, it could just be someone being nice to them. Um, it, it really is partially dependent on that individual's life experience, which, which is sad. I've heard of some situations with love bombing, which are as simple as somebody just buying them McDonald's and helping them with a phone bill. And that's, that's so minor, but if you've been so starved for love in your life and so abused, you are very vulnerable to a narcissist um, because you don't value you. You've learned to not value yourself, and you're just so happy to have any any attention from someone. So the second stage would be the trust and codependency. So this love bombing, it, it gets to a point where you trust them. You're like, okay, this is a good person. I can trust them. I I I want to, you know, they're they are special for me. Um, they're my person, and this could be. A family member, a friend, um, a lot of times romantic partners, but that's the trust. Um, the next part would be the criticism. So this is when you start to be put down by the narcissist. Um, they start picking at you, putting you down in small ways. Um, and this could be anything, but it's just start to make you feel like <clears throat> you might lose the love because they're finding some flaws in you. And so you need to you need to step up to, to make sure you can keep it. And this is where the addiction stuff starts, the toxic hope. The next part would be the manipulation and gaslighting. So with the criticism, you and maybe just, you know, twist it around that you need to do, you need to look like this to make me happy. 
Um, you're acting crazy when you talk like this. It's stuff that like further devalues you, further makes you feel like there's something wrong and you're going to lose this great love that you think you have. It makes you feel insecure. The next one is resignation and giving up. So it would be feeling like you are a bad person. You're not, um, let's say you try to be a empathetic person, a compassionate person, a giving person. You might be told you're selfish. You might be told, you know, you don't understand anybody. You're, the thing that the story you have about yourself of how you're trying to define yourself, they might tell you the opposite. So then you lose, you start to lose your identity uh, and believe what they're telling. The next one will be loss of self, where you become bound to them, bonded to them, because you feel, by the way, me saying this stuff is not tips for narcissists to get better at the abuse. This is just really for awareness about if people are doing these things, stop. And if people are engaging in it, to be aware that this is a cycle that they're being, it's not personal, actually. This is just what they would do with anybody that they want in their life. So the loss of identity. So for example, <clears throat> let's say you're you're always giving, you're trying to do everything for the narcissist you can and you're sick or you don't feel good or something. So that day you're not able to, to step up in the way that they want. They might say, well, you're a selfish person. You know, you're faking it. You're, you're not really sick. You They flip it around so that you start to believe, oh my gosh, I'm this selfish person. I'm a bad person. And then there's an addiction aspect because there's the hope that I'm going to prove I'm a good person. I'm going to prove um, I'm not these bad things they say. And then they're going to love me again. So it's quite the mind uh, <laughs> mind flip. <laughs> and the best thing I can recommend to anybody keep track, try to be detached and keep records. And the other thing that really sort of, if you look at the story you have of yourself, oddly enough, one way that's very powerful is to just agree with them, be detached. If they think that you're not compassionate, if they think that you're selfish, be like, okay, yeah, sure. Just agree with them, like whatever. Um, if you, cause then you're not participating in their game. If it is that you actually want to be in a relationship with this person, but you have to look at yourself because what they will do is anything they can use anything as a weapon against you. So if you might think how, how is being, you know, seeing myself as a kind person, how is that a weapon? Well, it's a weapon. If you're too attached to it, it's a weapon. If you feel like it's really important to you that you're not mean or something. You have to be able to be detached from your ego and your definitions of yourself because they will use anything they can in that manipulation gaslighting stage. Oh, yeah. that's That was really, uh, like I haven't heard that before, that try to become detached of your ego and definitions of yourself. Like, uh yeah. So for example, like something I've seen with some narcissistic relationships is maybe at the beginning, they'll think they'll act like you're so beautiful and you're so amazing. And they just, you know, praising you. And then they start putting down little things like, why are you wearing that? Your hair, it looks better this way. You know, you look better if you lost five pounds, whatever, doesn't matter. 
if you feel super good about how you, this, just in this example, if you feel super solid in how you look, you could say, you know what? I look, I think I look great. Um, I don't know what you're talking about. Like you just don't, you don't give into it because you're so solid in yourself. You're not able to be manipulated. The more solid you are in yourself, the more you can't be manipulated. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I'm thinking about the question or yeah. Sorry, but then, the more solid you're in yourself and you can't be manipulated, you all, also, they might leave because if, if they can't manipulate you, then they, it ruins their whole game. Mm, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Then uh, one question about this, how are trauma points formed? You kind of, so you explained those. So it's the cycle who form, uh, that forms it and the reward and punishment thing. And then that you become addicted to trying to, for example, prove to them that, okay, I'm, I am kind or I am not those things or whatever. And, uh, then I was thinking, what are some things that I can, like, how, how is, how am I, if I'm trauma bonded in a relationship, how is my role or my behavior or me, how is that contributing to the formation of trauma bond? Are there some aspects that I could look within myself and identify, okay, that part of me or whatever that relates somehow to me is contributing to the formation of this trauma bond? Absolutely. Um, and I think that's actually a key component because believe it or not, the narcissist needs you. They need their narcissistic supply. Well, they think they do. Without it, they feel empty. They don't, they feel awful about themselves. There's a ton of shame. A lot of them actually live with under the layers of all the stuff they do. And the more abusive they are, the more the shame builds. They need you to feel good about themselves. And sometimes they need you for resources. Sometimes they need you for love. Sometimes they need you, whatever it is that their need is. Um, you, you are valuable. So a couple of things, because I don't like to see people as victims. I think that can be disempowering, even though people can definitely be victims of narcissists. When you value yourself, when you think I'm good, I'm kind, I like myself. I don't let people treat me badly. I respect myself. You will not be participating in this cycle. If you have any weaknesses there with how kind you are to yourself, it, you got to like be number one there for you. So, and that not in a selfish way, but like in a way where you have your own back, because sometimes people feel like with a narcissist, they found someone that's going to save them, make everything great. And the addiction part of this can be being addicted to the love bombing, the, the high that you had at the beginning where you felt so loved and so valued and so amazing. If you already feel valued and loved because you're not nice, because you, you believe it, you believe you're valuable. You believe you're lovable. You believe you truly believe you're good, no matter what anybody says, then you won't get hooked in. So really working on yourself to be strong in yourself. So you're not, you're not susceptible. You're not susceptible because actually they need you. You're actually very, very valuable. And they teach you that you're not. And 
if you come from a childhood, like I gave the example of, um, and actually this pattern, by the way, I used to work with human trafficking survivors and this pattern is also seen with that, with grooming for, um, teenage girls. Uh, we see this a lot, uh, this love bombing type of thing. If you come from a, a childhood, a household where you've been devalued, you've been abused, you've been taught, you're not very, you know, you're worthless, you're ugly, you're not lovable, you've been starved of love, you're at high risk of these kinds of narcissistic people because you're going to think you're getting everything you you always needed from your childhood, everything you never got, but it's a lie. It's an illusion. And the best thing I can, the best advice I can give anybody is you kind of have to save yourself in the sense that be there for yourself and then you will attract people into your life that treat you better. Mm, okay. Yeah. Thank you. So to sum up like how, how stuff related to you could be, um, could play a role in forming a trauma bond is like low self-esteem or negative perception of yourself, like unlovable, unlovable, ugly, etc. what you just listed and negative uh, traumatic childhood in some way or another and yeah those things but and i also want to mention too something it, it, <laughs> this is less common but i've seen this too um kind of an innocence and lack of knowledge lack of education also can put you at risk if you don't know like you know kids are taught when they're little i don't know anymore but when i was a kid you know, if there's an, if a guy in an ice cream truck is trying to get you in there, don't, don't go. I don't even know if there's ice cream trucks these days, but um, we're not really taught to look for these signs. It's not like, look for the seven, you know, seven steps of abuse. Like you're not taught these things. Look out for love bombing. You're not, you, you don't learn about that. And so I have seen situations because generally speaking, narcissists want somebody that they perceive as valuable. So I have seen some situations where people come from actually okay homes, like home, okay childhoods. They have okay lives, but they, they're unaware. They're oblivious. They know, they know very little, if anything about this whole thing. And they are also susceptible um, because narcissists like people that are kind of status symbols. So if somebody might be successful, um, with their job, with how they look, whatever, whatever it is that will serve the narcissist to make their life better. So you could be a high achieving person who's very high functioning. And you, if you know nothing about this stuff, that also makes you vulnerable. Mm. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Uh, then I would want to move on uh, kind of more the solution and what do you think what are the 10 most important things that one must focus on to break a trauma bond and why yeah so i'll try to make a clear 10 10 sort of step solution um it's kind of like any problem in the sense that i would say the first step is awareness the first step is awareness that there's a, something going on that's off that you're like, wait a second, 
what is going on here? This, you know, this doesn't feel good. I'm obsessed with this person. I'm stressed about them. I do anything for them. I always, I'm feeling worse and worse about myself. I'm just always constantly hopeful that it's going to change. Whatever it is that helps the, the light bulb go off. The first step is awareness. And that's true of any problem is if you don't know what's happening, then you are part of it. Um, because in order to stop being in the cycle, you need to start to see the cycle, which means taking a bit of a step back. So that would be the first thing. And that's sort of more of a mindfulness thing. Um, the second thing I'd say is, oh, oh, wait, I actually have a follow up question. You mentioned that it's more like a mindfulness thing. So the first step to become aware, would you say that, okay, learn about narcissism, read about the cycle, read about trauma bonding. And then would you like recommend practicing mindfulness or how do you uh, kind of, yeah, what do you actually mean by the mindfulness? The mindfulness, and thank you for asking more specifically, whatever it takes to become aware of the cycle. Um, because when you it, it is actually, there's a lot of parallels with addiction. When someone's in an addiction, they, they don't even know a lot of times they're in it because they're so in it. It's like all they're thinking about it becomes their whole world. Um, a lot of times I can tell with clients that they are in a narcissistic or a dynamic with someone with a personality disorder because their whole world becomes about this person. Um, so there's different ways of creating awareness. I know that there's more and more support groups out there. Sometimes I think those are great. Sometimes maybe not. Because <laughs> who knows who's in these support groups. And they're not good if they keep you stuck in the cycle. And you're just, it's an outlet to be obsessive about this the problems. So I would say, first of all, try different things. Um, you might think about what kind of a person are you? Some people do their best reflection and detachment when they go for walks, when they spend time in nature. Um, I like the idea personally, which might sound, you know, dry or scientific, but of getting a calendar and actually marking the dates. Um, and we don't have the nurses to see you're doing this, but actually marking the dates of the, of the behaviors you're seeing, like, hmm. They criticized me today. They put me down. They gaslighted me. They did this. Then there's love bombing. So a calendar can help you to see, oh my gosh, this happens every two weeks. This happens every three days. Like it helps you to start to see there's a pattern and it also helps to detach. Um, journaling can be helpful, but again, not as a way to become obsessive and find solutions not to be hopeful that you can change the narcissist, but just to see the patterns. So I'd say journaling, I'd say um, <clears throat> a calendar, sometimes support groups are helpful. Um, I've seen for some people that going on trips can be helpful or um, like a retreat, something where they have some separation, but that's tricky because a lot of narcissists are not going to want you to go anywhere. Um, and you might have such low self-esteem, you might not feel capable of going somewhere. But 
I have seen some, some type of space where it's just you and it's your focus is not on them. So you can see the patterns of addiction in yourself. Um, good old fashioned meditation actually can help where mindfulness meditation, where you are, um, combining some self-compassion exercises, but also reflecting on and noticing the cycles. Cause when you do mindfulness meditation, you are going to notice the thought patterns. If, if when you're meditating, you're just thinking about this person and you know, what's happening and it's all focused on them. Eventually, hopefully the idea is that you will calm down enough to have detachment and see. Um, the other thing I'd recommend too, in terms of awareness, although this is a little tricky, trying to find relationships that are healthy and that can help provide a contrast. Some people, they can't think of any, they don't know anybody that has a, a good relationship. So they say, um, there's the wheel of nonviolence. I encourage people to look at that. And instead of the wheel of violence, the wheel of nonviolence helps you to understand about nonviolent relationships and the categories in them. So you can be like, oh my gosh, this is not what my relationship's like. Also looking at the wheel of violence so that you can see, oh, I'm, I'm stuck in all these patterns. So short answer is I would try different things out. <laughs> Whatever helps you to start to have some detachment. But detachment is key. So, cause you need to see that there's a problem. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for all those tips. I, I feel like, well, you provided many tips. So at least maybe some, some of those things, someone can be like, okay, I can at least, you know, try that and start with that and yeah, then move forward. Um, so after awareness, what, what comes next? Yeah. So after awareness, I would say the maintenance of awareness, the being strong in it, because it's kind of, again, like addiction where someone can have a realization, oh my gosh, you know, I have a problem with this thing, but then they go right back to it. So, cause you get hooked back in. So I would say second step is maintaining awareness. Um, and that's tough because you might not want to believe this person you thought you loved so much or you love is really this other thing. They're really not going to be the solution to, you know, the childhood wounds. They're really not going to give you the love you thought. They're really not a soulmate. They're really not the mother or the father you thought, whatever. It doesn't matter. It, it's a loss. It's, it can be, it can be tragic. Actually, it can be really heartbreaking the maintaining awareness and maintaining maintaining the re, the understanding of what you're seeing because it it's this loss of a dream it's a loss of a hope of what you thought you were living and it's very sad it's almost like it's kind of like living a lie it's it's like having a situation that's that's a lie and and there can be there can be definitely a lot of grief that goes with that and you have to be, you have to be so sick of the abuse. You're ready to face that grief. You'd rather grieve over the loss of this dream than stay in the abuse. Um, or just be strong enough 
that you're choosing yourself. Uh, you're choosing to accept and look at what the truth is. So I'd say the second thing is maintaining um, this awareness. Mm, okay. Yeah, that makes makes a lot of sense. And so the best way to maintain that, would it be to just continue doing the things that you mentioned in the first step? Um, you know, those, you know, uh, yeah, those exercises that for, uh, in the first place kind of opened your eyes and uh, made you aware in the first place. And then that now that you mentioned grief and loss and grieving the loss of the dream and that, do you often talk about radical acceptance exercises with your with your clients or something like that? Yeah. Um, so something that I see with the narcissistic stuff when someone's with someone that's a narcissist is a lot of times they don't want to believe the things I'm saying. They don't want to. They don't want to believe the truth or they're really, really scared to, if I tell them, look, the person's going to be fine. They are, <laughs> they're well-trained in this. Probably they're, they're going to go on and find somebody else and do this too. You're the one that's suffering. Like, can you see how much you're suffering? I think, yeah, but if I just do this, it'll change. If I just do that, it'll change. And I have to point out, no, look, look at the cycle. Look at this, the history they they're benefiting as long as they're benefiting from you there's no incentive to change people if there's any hope for change if it's because unfortunately with the narcissist they have to be extremely beyond extremely uncomfortable they have to stop getting their supply from you and then maybe they'll think hmm what am i doing that's a problem but they might probably just come up with other strategies to try to get supply from you so I'm sorry, I feel like I forgot your question. <laughs> uh, the question was like, how do you uh, kind of, how do you maintain the uh, awareness? How do you maintain? And then I asked, because you mentioned the grief, I asked like, can you talk about radical acceptance? Is that an important piece or is there something else that would be more efficient or better or yeah? I would say radical acceptance is key to this whole thing and nobody it, it's sad it it, it can be a, a great loss because and I partially to be honest with you I personally I blame a few things in our society and I don't like to blame but I point to a couple of issues that make people vulnerable I'd say the first is we have a rampant issue with dysfunctional families I think it's like estimated at least 87 percent of families are dysfunctional so you have a lot of children that are going to be having the baseline of not feeling loved, accepted, knowing how to have healthy relationships. So we're already starting off with like a, not a great baseline. So that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing is that this, this um, education piece, people are not educated to, to really understand. There's a lot of stuff out there, but some of it may or may not be true or makes sense. Um, but I mean like real education, like, in school or your childhood about the abuse cycle and, and these things like that. So the other thing I'd say makes people um, that makes it hard for radical acceptance is this idea of romanticism, which is so sweet and beautiful. And I love the idea of it. Like I, I'm a romantic in many ways 
although I'm so practical, you might not know it. But, but that being said, romanticism is an idea. It didn't always exist. I think it came from like the 1500s in Renaissance Italy or something. I believe that's where it started. I mean, I'm not a history expert, but my point is it's something that has evolved or devolved into what it is today. When we look at romantic comedies, different romance stories, and we think that's the way it's supposed to be. You you know, you find someone, you love them so much, and then, you know, that's it. I think that sets people up for not a great thing. Because if you if you are believing, basically train someone to believe in the love bombing stage and to believe it's real. And that's what it really is. When really it's a stage within a whole cycle and it's not who that person is. So I'd say the romanticism that goes on um, also keeps people in the way of it. And um, so I'd say childhood wounds, lack of, of knowledge, um, the romanticism, and then any hopes and dreams you might have. So many people have these beautiful hopes and dreams for happy family, happy marriage, um, you know, just great relationships. And it can be tragic when you give and give and you try and you you try to be everything to this person. And some people, you know, they lose they lose tons of money. They lose jobs. Like there can be a lot of other loss associated with whatever they did and then it not to work out. But that has to do with your own inner work on your own dreams. So the radical acceptance means accepting the, the, the reality of what something is versus what you want it to be. Hmm. Yeah. And to sum up, I feel like those things that you just listed, the childhood wounds, your own hopes and dreams and the romantic, like the romantic view of relationships, like unrealistic, in an unrealistic way, uh, those all make it harder to maintain the self-awareness. They kind of got in the, they really make it very hard to maintain the self-awareness and they can also make it the grief and loss, uh, like more maybe profound like when you have all those factors at play at the same time right yeah absolutely and the other thing i tell people and this is also part of radical acceptance and it's not always fun but look at people's actions not their words so if you believe the stories that the narcissist tells you if they tell you like they have all this money and they they want to buy a big house and you can live together whatever if they tell you they want to help all these kids whatever story they're telling you look at what they're doing not what they're saying um it, it can be very second nature with narcissists to lie sometimes they don't even know like as one i remember one narcissist told me it can be hard for them because they've told so many lies. It's hard because they can't keep track of what they told who. (laughs) So (laughs) I'm like, well, I wish I could be sympathetic there, but just stop lying. But anyways, it, it lying can be just very second nature. So look at the actions, look at the patterns. And again, it can be heartbreaking because we, sometimes people really want to believe the story they really want to believe the the fantasy 
but it's not real and that fantasy can torture you with hope of it happening when it's just it's like an idea Mm. yeah okay so uh looking at actions and again maybe writing writing those actions down like in the first step keeping track of the cycles and their behaviors and actions that probably helps you in in the process of maintaining your self-awareness yeah yeah the other thing too with self-awareness i ask people is do the do they seem concerned about you at all like are they just really more about trying to focus on themselves and and convince you that there's something you're doing wrong are they worried about you do they take care of you are they noticing other people besides themselves and that can be tricky because there's also covert narcissism which looks sometimes like they care but um that's the other thing i try to tell people when they struggle with the awareness piece is look at the actions of who are they really focused on truly are they really just focused on getting their own needs met Mm. okay yeah thank you okay so we have gone to first step uh awareness second step maintain that awareness what's the third one third step would be and i guess you could say this is also tied into the second one really working on yourself so try to identify your own core wounds what happened that made you get hooked in um for example, you could have one person and they're love bombed and they're like, eh, because they know they they know enough to not get hooked in. So what what core wounds in you are there? Is it just lack of knowledge, which that can be I don't want to say a wound, but it can be an important aspect. Is it you have a, a romantic fantasy um, based off of your childhood not being loved? Is it you feel empty inside? Are you depressed? I actually find people can be depressed and the they, they're depressed and they have low self-esteem and the love bombing gives them that high. Um, what inside of you is a wound or something that needs to be healed or worked on? And not in a blaming way, but kind of like, okay, how can we make you so healed that this never happens again or never like this that you you're not susceptible to this ever again um in terms of figuring that out i would recommend something like journaling and i'm not talking about at this stage healing all your stuff i'm just talking about identifying Mm, so some prompts to ask yourself to in order to identify the core wound is just like ask yourself like what what made me hooked in into this or does some other helpful you know help questions come to your mind that people could you know ask themselves yeah so what is it about this what what need because we can get so fixated and i see this a lot of people they get so fixated other and being angry at the narcissist and all of that but what need do you have that's unfulfilled that keeps you hooked in um being really honest with yourself. For example, I have some clients that they're deathly afraid of being alone. They really think if they're not with a narcissist, no one's, and it's partly because of the abuse, but it's also because of their own beliefs or their childhood experiences. 
they believe if they're not with a narcissist, they're going to be, you know, lonely the rest of their life and no one will want them. So it's better to be with a narcissist than to die alone. And that's very extreme thinking. But what, what inside of you is a toxic belief that keeps you tied? Um, believe it or not, and this might be funny, but this I've heard from different clients about the twin flame movement which is another romantic idea. It's very sweet in some ways, terrible in others, but the belief that someone, the narcissist is your twin flame, the belief that the narcissist is a soulmate. You might think, well, that's not a wound. That's not bad. It is though, because that means this person is so special. You cannot lose them. You have to sacrifice your life for them. So what is your toxic belief that keeps you in this and your toxic belief is tied to a wound or a need that you have because we can be focused on the narcissist taking and taking but you have your own unmet needs that keep you hooked in and that's okay that's human we all have needs yeah thank you okay um that makes sense mm. so I'd, I'd say for the third one identifying your core wounds identifying um your own vulnerabilities yeah okay great then the fourth one so we had awareness maintaining awareness and then learning about yourself like your core wounds and insecurities and vulnerabilities so what's next i would say after that well it depends where you're at in the cycle but i'd say work on those core wounds um work on those vulnerabilities and i do have some clients and this is tricky that they try to stay in the relationship with the narcissist while working on their wounds. You can do that. It's tricky though, because the narcissist actually doesn't want you to heal and get stronger because then you might leave them and you might stop giving them their narcissistic supply. Um, but it can also give you the strength to leave if you want to. So I would say, regardless of where you're at with, staying or not staying in this in the relationship um in some of the situations you are stuck with those people because maybe they're family members maybe it's a sibling maybe it's a neighbor maybe it's a coworker. i mean it's not always as simple as a relationship where you can break up and leave it, it could be someone that you have to be around sometimes or many times so i think this is good advice either way um, so I would work on those core wounds. If the core, if the issue is education, get yourself educated. There's lots of great books out there. Um, there's all kinds of stuff on the internet, but I, I, I would go more for like books that are from, um, licensed psychologists and that have good reviews, um, and educate yourself. Um, other ways of working on things, you know, journaling, um, seeing a therapist, working on, I've seen, and you know, it's so cool to see, I do have some clients that are, they have narcissism and I have clients that are um, in relationship to some extent uh, with a narcissist, either family member or, or romantic, but the people that are not narcissists, they heal, they can heal so fast. Sometimes when they're ready, I'm amazed at how fast we fly through things and how much better they feel. 
And the narcissist takes so much longer. The, the work they need to do can be years and years and years of work, but they're actually much more wounded. The the person that is the survivor that is or victim in the in the dynamic, they some people think they're afraid to go to therapy. They're afraid to look at what's going on. But I've heard people say over and over again, it's the best thing they ever did. They're so thankful. But you need to really find someone that can help you with building up your self-esteem, building up your confidence, building up feeling that you are valuable, helping you pursue dreams on your own, empowerment. A big piece of this is empowerment. So I'd say going to therapy, support groups. Um, I've seen some stuff for people like doing working out type things, marathons, things that help them build up their physical strength sometimes punching bags, um, whatever you need to build yourself up because the narcissist beats you down. You need to build yourself up. So whatever you can do to build yourself up in a positive way, I don't mean a toxic way. And I don't mean repeating the narcissist behavior, building yourself up in an authentic way. So you feel really strong and good. Um, And so I would look for support and a great way to start is like, yeah, like a life coach, therapist, um, working out, whatever it takes for you to feel good about you. So the fourth thing I'd say is take the action and implement that. If you have depression, if you have mental illness, work on that. Sometimes medication can really help. Um, So yeah, that's, that's what I'd say is take those actions. Um, And Some people, they're so beaten down, they only can do like small actions. That's okay. You know, baby steps. Maybe just every day, try to do a small thing for five minutes that builds you up. Even if it's just, um, there's some really cool apps with motivational quotes. They can pop up on your phone, but whatever you're able to financially afford, do with time, wherever you're at, just small steps. What I highly recommend is not getting into, if you're in a romantic relationship or if it's a family, I I recommend not getting into another one. So this is something I see with people. They just, they jump from one to the next. (laughs) I've never seen that go well, quite honestly. Um, Or they think, oh, okay, I'll move back home. That'll be the solution. I've also not seen that go well. The only thing I've truly seen go well, in fact, I've seen that make people more and more sick, the other things, is taking the space out to work on yourself. That is what I've seen be the most effective approach. Mm, yeah, thank you. That, that was pro, uh, comprehensive. Now we have gone to like uh, four steps and the step number one was awareness. Step number two was maintaining this awareness. Step number three was to kind of identify your core wounds, vulnerabilities, what kind of what makes you more vulnerable to uh, narcissistic abuse. And then the fourth one was kind of to really go into these vulnerabilities of yours, build yourself up and focus on yourself, taking action and really you know, building your self-esteem up little by little. So Dr. Sarah, what is the fifth step? Yeah, because it is actually our own core wounds that help us to 
stay in the cycle. So for example, let's say you see yourself as a giving, kind, compassionate person. That can be a core wound if someone says, well, no, you're not really. Look at these things you're doing. And then you try to prove to them, oh, look, 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 I'm I'm doing whatever. So it they, they can take anything and use it against you. Um, so that's why if you look at your own core wounds, there's nothing that can hook you in or keep hooking you in. So another thing about this is that with narcissists, they become the center. So even if you're upset all the time, you're upset about them, they become sort of the center point of your world. And that's very unhealthy. So I'd say the next step is to identify areas that you can improve in your life separate from the abuser. So as I said before, identifying your core wounds, but this is identifying areas in your life that you can make better. So are you wanting to get more education? Are you wanting to get in better shape? Are you wanting a better job? Even if it's just, um, you know, taking five minutes for yourself to rest every day, what are, what are some things that you can improve in your life so that it's not all about the abuser? You're starting to look at your life separate. So that's because it's sort of sometimes baby steps with these things. And then the next one, um, number six is to identify small baby steps (laughs) that you can improve in your life, because this is going to be a push pull experience. And if the narcissist senses you're starting to change and pull away, they're not going to like that. And they're going to probably attack what you're doing. And so baby steps is important. Let's say you wanted to do an art class. Well, the narcissist might put that down. They might try to go one time and then sabotage it. They they will try to intervene. So that's why I say baby steps is because if you're doing it in small ways, it's more manageable for you to actually implement and they probably are less likely to notice. And it helps you to slowly turn your focus from being all about them to other things in your life. Um, And then it starts to build you up and you realize the whole universe doesn't revolve around if this person is happy or not and how they're treating you. Um, Number seven is to implement these baby steps. So I encourage people to try to be really honest with themselves and figure out what they actually like. And and something that can happen, especially if you've been in an abusive relationship a very long time, family member, friend, work, romantic partner, doesn't matter. You may not even know what you like. You might have no idea because you're so used to just trying to make the other person happy all the time and keeping the peace, not upsetting them. You might not know. Um, some base. And so you work from there. You know, I've seen with some people, they don't even know what movies they like. They don't even know what food they like. They don't know. They don't even know what color they like. And so part of it is getting your identity back, getting your life back and realizing that maybe you're you lost your life on some level because it was so focused on the other person. Um, so yeah, small ways, which can just be, oh, I like these kinds of movies. I would like to watch this movie tonight. And you know what? A change that small could actually set off a narcissist. They may not like it. There can be fights over that. 
but stand your ground. And, you know, of course, don't put yourself in a violent situation or anything like that. But I want you to see how you, when you make those small changes, even those can are, are actually very big because you're breaking away from them. You're saying you have your own thoughts, your own needs, you're your own self. And it might seem very small, but small little things that show you are separate from them is very important for you to start to make that breakaway. Um, and then from there, it, if you are able to get to this point, I would recommend, and sometimes you need like a professional help with this, but not necessarily try to write out a list of the hooks and the ways that the narcissist uses to pull you in. So I've done this with some clients and it's at first confusing for them. And then they kind of fight me on it a little bit. And then it's like mind blowing because they will start to see the patterns. So for example, I might tell a client, okay, let's just come up with a list. Let's try to detach and come up with a list of, of the different things that your abuser has done to pull you in. You know, what have they found that works? And I want you to also think, what have they done that doesn't work? Because they've tried out lots of things to figure out your hooks. So as one client, for example, who he really wants to help really, really loves to feel like he's being of service and rescuing someone. So she learned, okay, if I act in a certain way, if I create chaos and, and fake crises and problems, and he will be hooked in every time. But other things she tried didn't work. There were other things that she tried out and he's like, no, that, and I talked to him about it. And he's like, no, yeah, she did that. And that repelled me or she did that. And I didn't care. And so they figure out what works to hook you specifically in and they keep doing it over and over because if you know it or not, you're actually very valuable to them because you provide them a service or resource. Mm, yeah, that's interesting. Can you give more examples of hooks that you have heard while doing that um, exercise with your clients? Yeah, absolutely. So it probably comes down to your own core wound as well. So... um It could be that, let's say you identify yourself as someone who um, is is like a giver. They might act like they need more and more and more. So they figure out that's a way. Um, different hooks. Oddly enough, <laughs> I have seen as well, like let's say you're someone that's really against alcohol. You really don't like drugs and alcohol. They might pretend like they are having the beginnings of a problem with it, or they might pretend they, they will use alcohol in a way to suck you in, to get attention. Um, so it can be really what whatever it is to kind of hook you in. Um, I saw another situation where, this might sound strange, but um, They, the person was pretending to be helpful with buying, um, okay, the person needed help with buying a house. And so the way that the narcissist hooked them in was pretending to be helpful with buying the house. And then when they go to look at the houses, they'd be abusing them during this time. And they would use this as a manipulation tool to cause problems. So I definitely see children are used uh, probably as the worst type of hook. And it's really tragic and very, very terrible for children. Then I see people 
narcissists use children as a way to suck in the other person. So like, let's say you have a couple and they break, they end the, the person gets away, the, the non-abuser gets away um, and they have shared custody. Well, the abuser can create chaos, problems, um, fake things about the kid to suck the other person in and or even imply that they're hurting the kid, but there's no evidence or imply the child is doing bad to to scare the other person. So they use the other person, use the child in all kinds of ways. And it can be strange ways. Like, like I've seen one situation where the the abuser um, threw away the kid's uniform. So the kid had to go to school in their normal clothes and it caused a problem. And so the the non-abuser parent had to come in and rescue, or maybe the narcissistic parent sends the kid to school without lunch. And so the non-abuser has to go and rescue and gets attention that the narcissist gets attention. So using the child as a way of hooking people. I've also seen people use children deceptively to hook people. So like, let's say um, you love, love children. You you think children are so great and you you start dating someone that has a child. They might pretend to be the greatest parent to hook you in, but it's an act. So it's whatever will work on you basically to, to hook you in. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And can you just kind of clarify and remind why creating this list of uh, writing out this list of the hooks is so important when we are trying to break the drum bond? Yeah, so it's actually a mindfulness practice and it helps to slow down and detach from the cycle. So with mindfulness, it's all about you're not your thoughts and feelings. You are the observer. And one of the things is with the trauma bond, it's very reactive. You're in this cycle of emotional reactivity like imagine with a child the the parent might be like oh my gosh they're not going to have lunch or oh my gosh my child's suffering and then they come to the rescue because it's a reaction and they can't see they're being hooked in over and over again um so writing it out is a first step i think to being like oh my gosh these patterns keep happening these are hooks this is not this individual personal specific instance this is a pattern they've they've identified you know a plus b equals c if i do this thing i get this reaction so they keep doing that thing so writing it out helps to make it more detached helps you to separate from it so you can start to see it in your life and you can start to actually even every day even check off on a list okay what did they do today what did they do this week to help you understand this is not so much about you. This is just about mechanism they found, strategy they found to manipulate you. It helps make it less personal and helps you to react less. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Thank you. Was this the eight, the number eight, writing off the list of hooks? Oh, um. so the next one, yeah. So identifying the hooks the narcissist uses to pull you in. So, <clears throat> so I would say identify the hooks that they use, but also things that they've tried that didn't work. Because oh, they can yeah. help you see that they actually have a strategy that they might be unconsciously doing, but they figured out. So, for example, there's one situation um, I'm thinking of 
she figured out, okay, if I act helpless and I'm in a financial crisis, it hooks him in. He'll never leave. Um, if I act jealous, that repels him. If, if I send him certain types of pictures, that repels him. If I talk about babies, that repels him. So she figured out, okay, if I do certain things, it doesn't work. If I do other things, that does work. So like a formula, they figure out what works for you and they keep doing it. And actually, a lot of people don't know this, unfortunately, the love bombing stage can also be a time, but is a time, that they are figuring out how you tick. They're figuring out what will hook you and what will not. So that love bombing stage is a time where when they seem so vulnerable and open or or they you're feeling so vulnerable and open and safe, they're getting information on you. They're figuring out what will work to hook you in general because you are actually the prize. And the biggest thing I see is people don't see that. They don't see their own value and worth. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. What, what is the next step? Yeah. So the next one is committing to an awareness of the hooks and keep track of how you do it, um, how they do it to see the patterns. So a big part of this like addiction is not just identifying as a problem, but you have to do it every day, every day, because people actually get almost addicted to the highs and lows the hope that it's going to change and go back to the love bombing stage. So committing to the hooks, and this is not very fun, but my clients that are really in so much pain, they just can't take it anymore. They might lose their jobs, lose all their money, lose everything because of the abuse. Sometimes they're finally ready to commit. And it's every day keeping track of the hooks almost charting it and it makes it less emotional that way and helps you to see who you're really dealing with beyond the mask. So committing every day to this process and trying to remember, let's say they switch back to love bombing. It's a cycle. It's a manipulation. It's not real. And that is sad. It is sad. But it's also an acceptance that you're caught in an abusive cycle and it's not, it's not real. The trying to understand that you have to commit to this every day to help yourself get out of it. Mm, in practice, does that mean, for example, reading the list that you have written about the hooks every day, reading lists about, mm, I'm thinking like, if you like track the cycles as well, like you track them also by writing them out, but just like, you know, when you do write uh, your thoughts and feelings down and keep logs about what happens, just kind of visiting them at least once a day, reading them out just to, you know, remember what you have written. And then of course, keep, you know, writing and writing things down as they happen or what does, what does it mean to stay committed? commitment every day to this yeah so it is actually a mindfulness practice as a detachment practice it means tracking and i would recommend every day actually tracking every day what the heck happened that day even if it's just that that person didn't talk to you and didn't interact with you that day 
something that actually is a trigger point that sucks a lot of people in is dismissing and devaluing. So maybe they just pretending like you didn't matter and they haven't talked to you for three days because they're just showing you that they don't need you and you don't matter. It's a manipulation. <laughs> it's not true. Uh, they figured out somewhere though that by withdrawing, you come running or you you surrender to what they want and you go back into the whole cycle. So it's charting, okay, what is happening today? And because narcissists, they need regular supply. Without it, there's a lot of darkness in them, a lot of pain. Um, they may be going to other sources to get it if they're not getting it from you. And some people can't, they get very upset about that. But the thing is, the more detached you get, the more you realize you don't want them in your life. And ultimately your life skyrockets and becomes way better when they're out of your life and the less and less attached to the cycle you are. Mm, yeah, makes sense. Then do we still have one step left or have I lost track, com track completely? <laughs> So actually, I know you said 10, but I actually came up with 11. Oh, <laughs> <So>, yeah. <laughs> because there's so, it, it's a, it's like baby steps to get out of this. Um, but once you get to a certain breaking point, I do recommend no contact. Um, so number 10, be adding more positive things to your life. So even if it's just small mindful moments, um, it's really important to keep adding positive things to your life. So I, I talk about that earlier with identifying small baby steps of how you can improve your life and self-esteem, but this is adding more positive things. So keep adding more positive into your life. Um, and then the last thing I would say is no contact because they will, a thing that they generally will always do is they never close the door. They always kind of keep you on a string. You're the one that has to give yourself closure. Um, it is really tricky if you have a family member or somebody in your life, like a boss that you have to have interaction with, I would say take care of yourself and maybe have minimal interaction, um, set boundaries as best as you can and navigate your own situation with, the no contact, but a narcissist usually does not change. Your best chance of them changing is actually no contact. So you're actually helping them and yourself. Um, but limit the contact as much as possible because when they're interacting with you, the goal is to get something from you. That's what they really want. Um, and that's not helping them. You're kind of enabling them actually to keep the pattern going just by your participation, you're you're enabling them to do the behavior. And it's not good for you as well. Um, so limit contact. And then I'd say in situations where you really, you know, you're able to have the person not be in your life and you don't want them in your life because um, of the abuse, I would, you got to do no contact, which is really tough for people. And especially if it's basically like an addiction, it can literally be like a day to day thing. I actually have one client who it was such a abusive situation. She had 
and there, there was such a strong trauma bond. She actually had to do day to day, almost like, you know, 10 days sober, 30 days sober. She, she would count it like an addiction. Um, and she had support. She, she joined different, um, groups for support. And then she checked in with me, but it, it had to be almost like becoming clean and sober from addiction and no contact. And guess what? This person who didn't care and didn't need her has reached out to her so many times. She's lost track and even, you know, try to accidentally keep running into her. And it's been shocking for her that I was right. I'm like, yeah, because you're very valuable to this person. You don't know it, but they need you for supply. <laughs> they get attention from you, love, whatever it is that they want, maybe sex, maybe money, maybe um, attention. It doesn't really matter, but they want something from you. So they keep coming back. Um, and the the people that are most at risk are the ones that don't see their own value and worth. And they don't understand that they have so much in them to offer. And that's why the narcissist keeps coming back. So no contact is, I'm not saying it's easy. It's a lot like addiction where people have almost like relapses, but it is the best way to fully break this cycle and to wake up from the nightmare of what you've been dealing with. Um, But I have even seen how limiting contact can also make a big difference too. And I'm not saying people have to do this. I'm saying if you want the trauma bond to end, if you want things to change, then you need to do that. Mm, yeah. Um, I was thinking when you mentioned kind of by by participating in the cycle by just being there uh, actually enables their behavior. And by going no contact, you actually might uh, in, dire- in an indirect way help them. How do you then make sure that if they do, you know, come to um, try to contact you and say, you know what, now that you have been, you know, uh, now that you left and you're, you know, not in contact with me anymore, I have realized and, you know, how how bad my behavior has been and nobody has ever left me. So now, you know, I'm, I really see what I did because that can be a very powerful hook. Like, because if you have been, you know, hoping them to see it, finally hoping them to finally uh, show some accountability. And how do you know, like, is it just because we know also that they are unlikely to change that you shouldn't give any value to statements like that? Yeah, so I would say that is a very good hook, very common, actually. And if one of your hooks is hope and you love them and you just want them to be healed and whole and be back to the love stage, that is a very effective one for a lot of people. It is a lie. The reason I say that is it takes years, years of committed work. Painful work is not fun for them. It means a lot of accountability, a lot of reflection. We think our most recent research that I'm understanding is that it takes a minimum of three to five years of therapy, at least once, if not twice a week therapy with someone who specializes in narcissism and uses a systematic approach that um, you're basically fact-checking what they're saying 
with family, like people you can trust, like certain family members or friends to make sure they're not lying and manipulating the therapist. It takes years and they're not going to like the stuff the therapist says a lot of times. They're going to have times where they hate the therapist. They're going to have times where they think they're being attacked by the therapist. And assuming those things aren't happening, um, it's not something that just happens overnight. They don't just wake up. And it can be, though, that there's a moment where they have a realization, um, like an addict being like, oh, my gosh, I have a problem. That happens. But they're so conditioned to get what they need by or their desire. They get so much benefit from the narcissistic behavior. Why would they stop? So it's a it's a habit. And you have habits break over time. It's a pattern. Their way of behaving, it's it's patterns. So they might have that realization, but it's not true. It takes years and years to change. I have seen some people change, but most do not. Mm-hmm. And I feel like even if it's a realization, like, you know, comparing to some addict who might be like, okay, I have a problem. Just because they realize it, they might not yet realize all the ways that it affects their life. Same with like narcissistic person, they might realize, okay, yeah, what I'm behaving is not right. But then they don't understand and realize how it's basically almost in every action, interaction that they have. So it's hard to kind of, you know, they just don't even understand the um how do you say it the the, huh the impact yeah the impact and how big it is and how like uh, widespread it is so it's like if you did get back to back with them then they will probably still behave in abusive ways just because they haven't understood had the realization that oh my sense of entitlement is now active when i do this or my lack of empathy plays a big role in here now like they just don't they don't might not see all those things so it uh, yeah like okay thank you for kind of clarifying how big well, process that it really is the other thing i've seen and it's kind of unfortunate but it's across the board kind of like addiction when you hit a rock bottom i have seen that when narcissists are truly suffering when they feel like, wow, they just lost something big, they want to change, or maybe they're realizing I have a problem. Once they start feeling good again, if they do, they're going to go back because there's no motivation. The The motivation is always to feel good for them to get their needs met. So if they're suffering because the strategies they used didn't work, they might be open to trying something different. But if they get you back and they're feeling good again, they will go back. And so it'll be kind of almost this repeat of the love bombing stage again. And even a further hook of saying, I've changed, I changed. (laughs) So um, it takes years, years and years. And like addiction, actually, like they say with, I think, AA and different um, addictions, they say that they shouldn't date for like a year it's years of recovery to to recover from drugs and alcohol a lot of times. Um, it's not just a simple thing. And it's a lifelong thing. 
this is the same thing with narcissism on some level. It is a lifelong thing because what I have seen at least is sometimes the person's natural tendency, believe it or not, is to be manipulative, is to be taking advantage of others, is to think of themselves, is to have no empathy or little. That's actually sort of the first reaction. That's more natural. They have to work at the other stuff. They have to work at the empathy, work at the consideration, work at being nice. Um, And I have had this one situation I'm thinking of, there's been some, I don't know, a couple, some pretty, pretty cool success, but the other partner keeps, they know the consequence. They know that the other partner is partly checked out. And then if they have any more slip ups, they're out. So they, they are on their best behavior all the time. So they're trying to learn, but being on your best behavior over a period of time, months and months and months, you start to de- adopt that behavior more and more, but there has to be accountability. There has to be consequences. Participating in their abuse and their cycles makes them worse. You have to ha- keep them accountable if you're going to have them in your life. So when they do something, that's not okay. You have to call them on it. And it's very uncomfortable in the beginning and they will fight you and they will not like it, but keeping them accountable because it's the natural state is to be narcissistic. They're actually having to change their personality. And I have seen it happen. Um, It's slow though. And it's, it's like moving a big, I don't know, chip or something. It's, it's not, it's not something that happens instantly. Mm. Yeah. And it's really, really like, I, I, I feel like people often feel like, oh, it's my responsibility. Like I would feel so guilty for, you know, leaving. And, but at the same time, it's really draining to be dealing with, with, with an adult person that you need to be calling out all the time. And almost it feels like teaching them most basic things about, you know, relationships. So it's really draining. And when you add there that they, um, you know, fight against you and with the force of an adult person not like two-year-old toddler for example so it's like yeah it's really really draining it's very draining and the situations i'm thinking of where these things have happened the partners the non-abusive ones are amazingly strong loving people that really love the narcissist like to a level that honestly i'm blown away by and they just love this person and they're trying to figure out a way to stay in the situation. I don't recommend it. It's a hard life. It's almost like having another job because on top of their normal job and taking care of themselves, they're also managing someone who basically has mental illness and trying to retrain them. But I have seen it happen, but only when there's consequence, only when there's boundaries, only when people are kept accountable every day. Um, But no, it doesn't get fixed from someone just having a realization. Yeah. Yeah. It's too too strong for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. I want to wrap this up by kind of uh, repeating all these all these steps and please, um, you know, interrupt me if I say it wrong, or if you want to, you know, clarify it. But so we have been going through how to break a trauma bond and uh, 11 steps to do this would be first awareness, 
of the existence of the trauma bond. Second, maintaining that awareness. And third, identifying your core wounds and vulnerabilities, which make you more vulnerable to trauma bonded relationship and just narcissistic abuse or abusive relationships. Then fourth one, working on those, uh, your, your vulnerabilities and core wounds and taking action to uh, kind of uh, he heal them or address them. And uh, fifth, identify areas where you can uh, become better or improve your life and or aspects of yourself that doesn't involve the abuser in any way. So it so that the abuser is no longer, you know, all the center of your life, but that you have other aspects as well. Then uh, identifying small baby steps, how you can do this, how you can, you know, better yourself and your life. And seven, implementing those baby steps or so making a plan and commitment and really kind of, uh, you have to, you know, Put a time slot in your day and a schedule where you are going to actually do these uh, baby steps so that you actually implement and otherwise it's just a plan and you never actually implement it and then eight was write a list of hooks so what has worked to hook you in but also what hasn't worked to hook you in so you increase your awareness you understand that okay they they actually use strategies they actually you know do this stuff and nine, commitment to seeing those hooks. And this could mean, you know, just keeping uh, writing things down every day, what's happening, even if nothing happens. So it's like a period of where they use silent treatment or just ignore your existence, but just writing every day something down that you commit to this. Um, um, you commit to uh, writing everything down. And 10, keep adding and add more positive things to your life. And 11, uh, no contact. Yeah, and you summarize that really well. And if someone's wondering, like, why would I say, you know, awareness, um, implementation, then building yourself up, and then more awareness, implementation, building yourself up, it's because you get beaten down <laughs> by them, and that keeps you in the cycle. And so nurturing yourself, building yourself up, is really important um, however you can. So you have the strength to get out of the cycle. And that is something I do see that people get, and this is by the way, uh, an abusive tactic. People can get so beaten down, so exhausted, so worn out, so hurt. They don't feel like they have the strength or ability to leave. Um, and that's something that happens with abusive relationships in general. So nurturing yourself in small ways, building yourself up in small ways, um, and then keep adding to that is, is very important. And, you know, it doesn't have to be spending a lot of money or a lot of time. I've seen um, podcasts, be nurturing for people, meditations, time in nature, just figuring out what is nurturing to you to help fill you back up because they've been taking from you. And so you need to fill yourself back up. So you're strong enough to detach and leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. Because it's also a little, every time you do that, it's proof to yourself that you can like, for example, if they say that you are, have said 
and the way they have beaten you up is that you are not capable of anything. And then when you do, for example, figure out a small baby steps that you can do to improve your life and you actually do it. And it could be, like you said, very something very small, like let's say I want to be more flexible and then I make a goal that I want to stretch for five minutes every day for at least one month. Once you do that, you are you have achieved something like it doesn't have to be anything huge just like it just feels incredibly good that you set something for yourself and then you actually achieve that and then there is one when you keep doing that there is no one who can say that you know you haven't achieved anything because then you are like well you can say to yourself no point of kind of trying to convince them because they will find a problem in everything problem in everything but you can go back to your list of what you have achieved and those small baby steps and you can be like that's not reality like my my proof and reality is right here in my list so it's uh, yeah i think that's that's really really good point of yours that you know baby steps and building yourself up slowly because Mm -hmm. of they beat you up yeah When you give back to yourself as well, you're telling yourself consciously and unconsciously that you matter, that you have value, that it's not just about the narcissist. And part of why I say identifying baby steps is because the place that people get to is not the place they started. Um, Like no one starts off on a first date, usually getting yelled at and put down and, you know, something thrown at them or, or whatever it's it happens over time. It happens gradually. And so getting yourself out of it sometimes has to happen a little bit gradually, especially if you're very attached to them. And also because a narcissist will not like you detaching. They will not like losing supply. And so doing it in small ways is more sustainable. Um, It's like a a diet or something. (laughs) If you do something too extreme, it's not sustainable it's better to do something sustainable that you can manage. Mm, yeah, exactly. Okay. Uh, thank you so much, Dr. Sarah, for uh, going to today's topic, which was about kind of trauma bond and how to break it. So uh, I think this was, this was really good talk that I had with you today and I really enjoyed it. And it was, uh, your advice was insightful and informative and practical. So I want to thank everyone, everyone for listening. And thank you, Dr. Sarah, so much for coming here and sharing your knowledge. Yeah. Thank you as well. This was really fun. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review and share the episode with your friends and family. Have a wonderful rest of your day and see you in the next episode.